0: If you're, if you're joining us for the first time today, it's a great time to join us because we are starting a brand new series called The Meaning of Christmas. This is going to be a four-week series um, that will culminate on Christmas Eve, but starting today for the next three weeks, we're actually going to be in the Old Testament book of Isaiah looking at some prophecies that foretold the coming of Jesus some 700 years before his entrance into humanity. So before I, I get to the text and the prophecy we're going to look at today, <clears throat> I just wanted to kind of give you an idea of the heart behind this series. Um, Christmas Eve 2017, Katie and I and Everett and Scarlett, who are our only t- two children at the time, stood in line to see Santa at the Marley Station Mall. God rest herself. Uh, shame about the Marley Station Mall. While we were in line, uh, Everett, who was three at the time, got a little restless, wanted to stretch his legs, and so he and I went for a walk. Katie saved her place in line, and and we went to uh, the nearest entrance, and uh, Everett, I'm assuming filled with the holiday spirit, decided to hold the door for people, and it was a hit. People ate it up. It was going so well that I started recording it, and while I was recording, one gentleman that Everett held the door open for, uh, doubled back, and he was so appreciative uh, that Everett, who weighed about 35 pounds soaking wet at the time, got that door open for him, he was so appreciative that he doubled back and he handed my son a crisp, clean $1 bill. And I saved that dollar, and I framed it, and it now sits proudly on my kitchen counter as the first dollar that Everett ever made. <clears throat> so follow me here. That dollar, uh, when it's in that frame, and actually only as long as it's in that frame, meaning when it's understood in its proper context, that dollar in a lot of ways is uh, priceless to me because of what it represents. It represents a cherished memory. Uh, it represents um, a powerful life lesson. Uh, it reminds me that there is, in fact, some good in this world, despite what social media would have us believe. Uh, And it also makes me so proud of the person that my son both is and is becoming. But here's the point. If you take that dollar out of that frame, all of that's lost. You take it out of its frame, you take it out of its proper context, and it's just a dollar, nothing more, nothing less. And the reason I begin this series with that story is because Christmas is so much like that dollar. We are living in uh, what I think is undisputably the most commercialized and materialistic culture in human history. And in a culture like that, There is tremendous pressure. I don't care how religious you would consider yourself to be or how much you believe the Bible or how long you've been, you know, walking with Jesus. In a culture like ours, there's tremendous pressure to rip Christmas out of its frame, to rip it out of its context and try to reduce it to just a holiday, just a few days off of work, just some time with family and friends, just a chance to watch some feel-good movies, to see some Christmas lights, uh, to give and receive some presents. And when you do that, you rob Christmas of its potentially life-altering power. The the plain fact is that Christmas has the ability to produce things like love and joy and peace and wonder in a human heart. It has the ability to create a buoyancy in you even in the most painful and dark and unpromising circumstances in life. Uh, it, It actually, Christmas, has the power to change your life. The reason that I can say that with conviction is because that's exactly what it did for people in the Bible who understood it. But this is the key, and this is the heart of this series. The only way that Christmas can have the power to do that in your and my life is if we put it back in its frame and understand it in its proper context. That is what this series is designed to do. So starting today, specifically for the next several weeks... We're going to be in the book of Isaiah looking at these prophecies that really serve to frame and provide context for the meaning of Christmas. I'm in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea to the land east of the Jordan and the Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing the spoils, for you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For the trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace." The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is God's word. What you have there is um, certainly one of, if not the most famous prophecy in the Old Testament that foretells Uh, the arrival of Jesus Christ into human history, which is what we call Christmas. And so what I want to do is walk through this prophecy basically verse by verse uh, and divide it sort of into three uh, moves. I want to look at at this this prophecy, first off, uh, what it shows us about the need for Christmas, secondly, the hope of Christmas, and then lastly, the promise of Christmas. But I want to start with the need for Christmas because we have to start there. So, so let, me, let me read verse 2 to you again. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. What Isaiah is, is doing there is describing it, the state, not just of Israel, but of all mankind. And he says that, that mankind is both uh, walking in darkness and living in a land of darkness. And Isaiah is actually telling us two things about ourselves there. When he says that we're living in a land of darkness, what he's saying is that you, every moment of your life, since you've been turning oxygen into carbon dioxide, you have existed in a reality that is full of darkness. What that means is that when you look out into the world and you sense that something's not right with this world, you're not crazy. You're actually seeing things for what they are. But when Isaiah says that we don't just live in a land of darkness, but we walk in darkness, that's a Hebrew idiom that basically means... uh, We are not just the recipients and the victims of darkness as much as we are the source of darkness. In other words, what Isaiah is saying here, this is the human condition. Not only do you and I live in darkness, but darkness lives in us. Now here's why this is so important to understand. Because it already it flies in the face of everything that seems like a given to the natural heart of man. When I was putting this teaching together, specifically this, this idea... I I came across a survey. It was done uh, in May of last year, and this was not a a religious poll or anything like that, but a a, a company decided to poll um, a number of U.S. citizens to get a read on how the average U.S. citizen views mankind generally and then themselves personally. There's two main takeaways from this survey. One did not surprise me at all. One was utterly shocking to me. All right, first off, this study revealed that 81% of U.S. adults believe that mankind is inherently good. That did not surprise me at all. What I'm about to say, if you're anything like me, this will shock you, and I'm going to try to phrase it in a way that's that's clear. This poll revealed that 50% of the population of the United States believes that they themselves are better than everybody else in their life. 50% of people believe not just that they are a good person, but that they are the best person they know, better than everyone else in their life. 50% of the population thinks that way. Here's why that's important. Because according to verse 2, what Isaiah is saying here is that Christmas cannot mean anything to you. Christmas cannot be a light to you until you realize that you live in darkness, and that darkness lives in you. So, Merry Christmas, everyone. (laughs) Now, darkness, obviously, is a theme that that shows up all over the Bible. And to understand what Isaiah is trying to get us to understand about ourselves there, you really have to understand what darkness does to us. So, several years ago, uh, I did some research on the psychological effects of darkness, and I came across a really controversial study that involved six adults that were placed in underground, abandoned nuclear bunkers. Uh, The study was designed to document what would happen to these adults if they were placed in complete darkness and complete silence for 48 hours. And the study that I read uh, basically documented one particular man's experience. And I'll, I'll give you the 30,000-foot uh, uh, view here. And it was, really, it was really striking. And I think what the study reveals is, is really what, what Isaiah is trying to get us to understand here. So <clears throat> for the first 30 minutes, and I just ask you to picture yourself, 30 minutes of total sensory deprivation. It's probably safe to say no one who listens to this teaching has ever experienced anything like that. Total darkness, can't see your hand in front of your face, total silence for 48 hours. So anyway, 30 minutes in, for the first 30 minutes... This guy um, was singing and talking to himself. And after 30 minutes, he got bored of hearing his, himself talk, I guess. And so he decided to lay down. He had a little cot in his bunker. And that's when the first symptom of being in darkness uh, began to materialize. He started to feel a, uh, a more pronounced anxiety about his life outside that bunker than he had ever felt before in his life. And that makes sense because I think most of us, whether we realize it or not, We probably are dealing with more anxiety than we realize. We're just busy enough and distracted enough to not have to deal with it. When you're in darkness and silence for any length of time, you don't have a choice. So 30 minutes in, he's beginning to feel this pronounced anxiety. After a few hours, uh, he decided to go to sleep, which I would think is the smartest thing you can do if you're in total darkness and total silence for 48 hours, but it actually wound up making things worse Because what happened was when he woke up, he had no idea how much time had passed. It could have been seconds, it could have been minutes, it could have been hours, he didn't know. And I also, as I was thinking about this, it must be a really unnerving thing to wake up and your eyes not see any more light than they do when they're closed. So so the point is, his anxiety after a few hours turned into this really unsettling disorientation. Uh, At the 18-hour mark... He began to exhibit signs of deep paranoia, uh, meaning he started to seriously entertain the idea that he had been lied to, that the experts that uh, had contacted him were not really experts, that this experiment was not legitimate, and maybe he would never live to see the outside of that bunker ever again. So he started singing again, uh, only this time, out of nowhere, he exploded into tears That's 18 hours. At the 30-hour mark, he started pacing his cell kind of obsessive compulsively to try to stimulate his brain, and then finally, at the 40-hour mark, he started full-on hallucinating. And to this day, this guy claims that he saw in his bunker with him a pile of 500 oyster shells, after which he described that it felt like the room he was in was actually taking off, like the bunker was actually some sort of rocket ship. That's the conclusion of the study, but the point that it drove home fairly convincingly is, is this that darkness has this funny way of robbing us of our sanity, and the longer we're in the darkness, the worse our symptoms get. That is exactly what Isaiah and the Bible in general is trying to communicate to us when it tells us that we live in darkness and darkness lives in us. And in the verses directly uh, prior to this prophecy that I read you today, Isaiah describes in striking terms how mankind has always responded to this darkness. Let me read the final verses of chapter 8 to you. This is verses 21 and 22. It says, They will wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they're famished, they'll become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. And then listen to verse 22. It says, They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. What Isaiah is describing there is the response that people had in his day to the darkness that they were in. And what he's saying is that they they knew something was wrong. Every human heart has this deep intuitive sense that something's wrong. They just believed that they could solve it. And so Isaiah says they'll look to the earth. What that means is simply looking to you know, their resources, looking to their experts, looking to their intellect, looking to their abilities to, to try to do something to get this nagging sense that something isn't right with this world and right with themselves to lift. But Isaiah says the only thing that that ever leads to is more distress and more darkness, and more gloom, and more dejection, and, and a greater sense of hopelessness. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's because that's how people still operate today. According to the Bible, it's how we've been operating since Genesis chapter 3 when we walked out on God in the first place. Very few people, even according to that, that survey that I referenced on the, uh, you know, a few minutes ago, even people who would say that mankind is inherently good, almost nobody would argue with the fact that there is something wrong with this world. That there is some darkness down here. But what we've, what we've always wanted to believe, deep in the human heart, what we all want to believe is that there's something we can do to solve it. And so we look to the earth, meaning we look to our own resources, either in ourselves or outside of us, for something that will cause this darkness to lift and, and heal us of whatever we quietly sense is wrong with us. It, that, that idea... <clears throat> It shows up in our movies, it shows up in books, it shows up in, you know, the people that we idolize and platform, and it shows up in songs. I, I shared this with the 9 a.m. service. Does anybody here remember the song, We Are the World? <clears throat> Got a few. So that was a song, if I'm not mistaken, it came out in 75, and it was written by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie. 85. Thank you. <clears throat> it predated me. All right, give me a break up here. Two, two, years, two years older. Um, so apparently look, 46 artists came together uh, in, a, in a group that, that I think was called USA for Africa. And it was about, you know, they want to raise uh, money, charitable aid for Africa. And um, I, I actually listened to this and forced my family to listen to it yesterday on the way to dinner. But, but what I want to do, let me just read the chorus to you. Because the, uh, the lyrics to the chorus really perfectly embody what Isaiah says has always been our response to the darkness that we're in. It says, and it's, please appreciate how hard it is for me to read these words without breaking into song which no one wants. It says, we are the world, we are the children. This this is just remarkable to me. We are the ones who make a brighter day. So let's start giving. There's a choice we're making. We're saving our own lives. It's true, we will make a better day, just you and me. I mean, it couldn't, be more, it, it couldn't be more at odds. We will make a brighter day. We will save our own lives. We will make a better day. I just want to point this out. The message of Christmas, first and foremost, says, no, you won't. You won't do any of that. So where Isaiah begins here is that mankind as a whole is, is lost, not just lost in darkness, but a darkness that we cannot save ourselves from. And the more, and, and, and what he's saying at the end of chapter 8 is that the more that you and I look to ourselves or to this earth for a solution to what we know is wrong with us, the more we should expect this deepening sense of hopelessness, dejection, and despair. It should not surprise us when we feel a greater sense of hopelessness when we look in the darkness for a solution to the darkness. This is why it's been said, and I completely agree that when you really pay attention to what the message of Christmas is telling you and I, not just about the world that we live in, but about ourselves, that before Christmas gives you warm and fuzzies, it gives you, I think, the most painfully realistic estimation of our condition. So there's the need for Christmas, that we are lost in a darkness that we cannot self-extricate from. However, what Isaiah is saying in verse 2 is that into that darkness, a light that we did not kindle, We did not create a light from outside of us has dawned on us. And this brings us, secondly, to the hope of Christmas. Let me read verse 2 again and and pair it with verse 3. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. So Isaiah says that that we're in darkness, but this light from outside of us dawns on us. And in verse 3, he tells us what the effect of this light is. And I'd ask you, please don't take for granted how amazing the people who first heard this prophecy from the lips of Isaiah, how amazing this would have been to them. Because Isaiah says the effect of this light, this light does not expose us. This light does not shame us. It doesn't, it doesn't blind us. It doesn't burn us. It doesn't terrify us. The primary effect of this light is that this is a light that creates joy. It creates the kind of joy that the nation of Israel had during two specific moments during its you know, yearly life cycle. First off, during the harvest time. And then secondly, Isaiah says, when dividing the spoils. So, so real quick, let's just make sure that we understand what those two times are. First off, Harvest time, on the surface, seems fairly obvious. That was the time when Israelite farmers would gather their crops. But but understand that too in in Israel and in the ancient Near East, harvest time was about far more than just that. When you look uh, at at the way that God spoke to his people in the Old Testament, uh, one of the the hallmarks of God's promise to his people, from from the time that he began creating a people and calling out a people to himself, one of the hallmarks of God's promises to them is that he would bring them to this, this prime piece of real estate called the promised land, and he would cause that land to produce abundantly for them. And, and basically, the abundance of that land would be proof of God's faithfulness and his love and his care for them. So, so understand it through this lens. As an Israelite, if you, were, if you were living in the Old Testament nation of Israel, then every year when, those, when harvest time came, What that meant is you could look out into the countryside of Israel and what you were seeing wasn't just crops, it was a tangible reminder that God still loved you. That despite all of your sin and all of your stupidity and all the ways that you have not honored him in light of all that he's done for you, those crops were a physical reminder God's not done with us yet. His mercies are new every morning, he's still for us, he's providing for us, he's caring for us, he loves us, he's faithful. The the, the second occasion here that Isaiah mentions is 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 when they divided the spoils this idea of dividing the spoils that's a reference to wartime language when you divided the spoils of war what that meant is that you defeated an enemy so soundly that they either died by your hand or else uh, they 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 fled from you so quickly that they abandoned everything valuable in the process and so when you divided the spoils this means that you didn't just you didn't just fend off opposing force. You didn't just protect what you had. It means that your victory was so complete that you were actually richer on the other side of the battle than you were before you fought. Those two ideas, Isaiah says, come together uh, as the hope of Christmas. And so the idea here is that though we live in this darkness that we would never get out of on our own, a light would dawn on us and create a joy in us that cannot be Contained and the question again, if you were hearing this prophecy from Isaiah in his day, is how on earth is God going to do something like that? Right? If you were an Israelite in Isaiah's day, you you know you've heard the stories. The fact that you you even made it to the promised land is evidence of the fact that God does all kinds of incredible things. He parts red seas and he causes you know couples well well past childbearing age to you know, have offspring and he creates a nation, you know, miraculously and all this sort of stuff. But the question this prophecy raises is how is God going to bring so much joy out of so much darkness? And that question is precisely the question Isaiah asks in the remaining verses of this prophecy. So we've talked about the need for Christmas, the hope of Christmas. We're going to conclude today talking about the promise of Christmas. And there's three aspects to this promise as recorded in verses uh, 4 through 7 we'll walk through them one at a time. The first one, first aspect of this uh, promise is found in verse four. It says, for you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. So the word that Isaiah uses here that my version translates oppressive yoke, all that, that Hebrew word means is just a burden. So I don't know if you've ever heard this before, if you've thought about this before. I can tell you, I never really had until I, I had studied this passage this week. But what this means is that, that Christmas, first and foremost, the essence of the promise of what God would do for the world through this thing called Christmas, it's about taking burdens off of us that we were never meant to carry. That's, that is primarily the essence of the promise of Christmas. <clears throat> I've shared this story with you before. First thing that came to mind uh, when, when, when I thought about this idea. In the late 1730s, uh, a small group of people got together seeking an encounter with God. They knew about God in an intellectual way. They wanted to know him in a, in a deeply personal, subjective way. And the only reason that we know about this particular small group of seekers is because uh, two people from that group, you may have heard their names, John and Charles Wesley, they went on to found the Methodist movement which was a movement in which hundreds of thousands of people on either side of the Atlantic came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, this small group was when there was, was really the occasion of their lives being changed, which led to that entire movement. So one of the people from that group, his name was William Holland, uh, he, he got a hold of Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. And at the beginning of it, there's a, a preface in which Martin Luther attempts to summarize the entire message of Galatians. Uh, and, and so he, he brought it to Charles Wesley, and they decided to read it together and just see what happens. We know exactly what happened because William Holland recorded that night for us. Listen to this. He said, Mr. Charles Wesley read the preface aloud, and there came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. And this is the first, this is the first effect of that power coming over him. He said, My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. And when I afterwards went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. So you he heard that phrase. The first thing that, that he describes what happened to him. He said, my great burden fell off in an instant. That is precisely what Isaiah is saying Christmas is all about. It's, it's that God is going to do something in human history that will lift this burden from us that we weren't meant to carry. Now, the question is, well, what's the burden that Isaiah is talking about here? And I think this quote from William Holland perfectly answers the question. He says, the reason that his burden fell off is because he finally found the peace and the love that he had been looking for all of his life. And that's the burden that Isaiah is talking about here. It's that regardless of who you are or or what you believe about God, the Bible, church, you're religious, you're irreligious, you're you're modern, you're traditional, whatever, one of the things we all have in common, we we don't have a choice but to go through life desperately looking for this peace that gives our souls the rest that that we need and a love that actually heals us and completes us and makes us whole so that we, we can stop moving through life driven by shame. And driven by this feeling like we need to hide or we need to, to compensate for something that's wrong with us or, or we need to put up this front and kill ourselves trying to justify ourselves you know, to, to either ourselves or to the people around us. Every single one of us is looking for that in something. We've been looking for that all of our lives. And the problem of mankind, according to the Bible, is that ever since Genesis chapter 3, we've been looking in someone or something other than God to give that to us. And what that is, that is the essence of slavery. Slavery. That is the essence of, of this oppressive yoke that Isaiah is talking about because no matter what we look to to give us the peace and love that only God can, whatever we look to outside of, of God for that, we give that thing the ability to dominate our life. Regardless of how free we think we are, that thing becomes our master and it will never, it doesn't have the ability to give us what only God can give us. St. Augustine put it well when he said that God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. He's saying the same exact thing in different words. And so what Isaiah is getting at here is that the the, the core of the promise of Christmas is that God's going to do something that causes this burden that we can't carry to shatter to the point that we couldn't pick it up again if we wanted to. And he says he's going to do this uh, just as he did on the day of Midian. That's a reference to a time as recorded in the book of Judges when God delivered the Israelites from a group of people called the Midianites by a judge named Gideon who was this famously insecure leader that God used. And the way that God did it, if you're not familiar with the story, is God basically caused Gideon to send about 99% of his armed forces home before God defeated the Midianites through him, just to teach him uh, to put his trust in God's strength rather than his own ability. So let me just pause here. If this prophecy ended at verse 4, then what you would think if you were an Israelite in Isaiah's day is that, okay, God... God's going to, he's going to free us. He's going to liberate us. There's going to be some end to this oppressive yoke. But I guess we'll have to cooperate with him in some way the way that Gideon did. Because Gideon did have to pick up a sword. So if God's going to do in the future like he did in the past, then, then we're going to have to do something along with God. But look what Isaiah says directly after this in verse 5. He says, "...for the trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire." So that, these two images that he says here, the, the trampling boot of battle and the garments of war, those were the two things that you put on before you went to battle. So here's what Isaiah's saying. In saying that you can burn those things, he's saying, yes, there will be a war, but you will not participate in it. He's saying you can, you can completely dispose of and destroy your articles of war because this battle that will take place Is a battle that will be fought for you, not by you. That's what this means. Now, again, I'm just trying to get us into this prophecy like we're hearing it for the first time. If you were listening to that in Isaiah's day, that raises a lot of questions namely, who's gonna do this then? if, If God's gonna provide some kind of deliverance, but we take no part in it to the point that we can burn all of our stuff and stand on the sidelines watching it happen, well, then who's gonna be responsible for the deliverance? And the answer comes at the end of this prophecy, which is far and away the most famous part of it. Let me read verses six and seven to you. It says, for a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. What Isaiah is saying here is that the answer to our problem and the solution to all this tension and what will resolve all of these these questions that this prophecy raised, it all centers around this child. And you notice he doesn't just say this is a child that will be born. This is a child that will be born for us. This is a child that will be given to us. That's the language of substitution. And then after this, and this would have absolutely been the most striking thing about Isaiah's words, is that Isaiah assigns four two-word titles to this child. He says, this child will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. That means that what Isaiah is saying here in no uncertain terms is something that, that no other major belief system in human history has ever dared to teach, which is that God himself would actually enter into human history in order to rescue us from the darkness that we have no answer for in and of ourselves. So if you just pause here at verse 7, what is undeniable is that at the same time, and this is so much like God, at the same time, if, if Christmas begins by giving us a far more pessimistic estimation of our condition than any other belief system, which is that we are in a darkness we'll never be able to save ourselves from, then at the same time, what Christmas is doing is it's giving us a far more optimistic hope than any belief system would, because into that darkness that we can't save ourselves from, God himself would come to save us. And the way that that would come to be, although it would take some 700 years for this prophecy to be fulfilled, is in the person and work of Jesus, who during his time here, during his very short three-year ministry, said that he was the light of the world comes so that we would no longer have to walk in the darkness. And the only question that this prophecy does not answer explicitly is how this child, who is God, is going to do all this for us. And although it's not explicit, there is a hint about this in verse 6. I don't know if you caught this, but it was, it was noteworthy to me when I was studying this passage this week that Isaiah says regarding this child, the government will be on his shoulders In other words, it doesn't say that the government will be under his heel. It says that the government, the entire government, will rest on this Prince of Peace's shoulders. What that's hinting at is that an incredible weight will be applied to this divine figure. That the way that he will unburden us is by taking on burdens himself. And that's exactly what we see at the end of Jesus' life. I don't know if you've ever noticed this particular detail, but all the Synoptic Gospels include this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke include the detail that when Jesus died on the cross, darkness covered the entire land. And what that's meant to reveal to the people in Jesus' day and to us as we study it thousands of years later, that what was happening to Jesus on the cross is the ultimate weight that was being applied to him is, is our darkness the darkness that that we have earned, the darkness that we have chosen, the darkness that God would have been completely justified in leaving us in, Jesus Christ took absolutely all of that darkness on himself in our place on the cross. In other words, the man who called himself the light of the world allowed himself to be snuffed out in our darkness so that he could end the darkness without also ending us. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. Now, I want to end today with just one final question. As I put this teaching together, I got to this point, and then a nagging question kind of plagued me for a couple of days. The question is, what are we supposed to do with this? I don't know if you're new to this church, But just last week, we finished a 12-week series through the book of James, which is arguably the most practical book in the entire Bible. If you were with us for any part of that series, you know that you cannot read a passage in James without getting hit by multiple commands that we can immediately and directly apply in our lives. This passage could not be any more different than that. There's not a single command for us here. This is all about what God does. So the question is, what are we supposed to do with this, and how can this prophecy affect change in your and my life today? And I want to leave answering that question with just two implications and we'll be done. The the first might sound strange, but hopefully you you understand where I'm going with this when I get to the second one. First and foremost, the message of Christmas, when you really understand what it's saying, the message of Christmas enables you to face the darkness of this life and even the darkness of your own heart without flinching. what we said earlier is that before Christmas gives you any warm and fuzzies, it tells you that you live in darkness because there is a darkness in every single human heart. And I just want to ask you, what if you don't believe that? Uh, Meaning, what if, like, the 81% of people that I referenced in that that survey that took place last May, what if you move through life believing that mankind is inherently good and that you yourself are better than everyone else you, you meet in your life? what will happen inevitably is you will be woefully unprepared for the darkness of this world when and not if it rears its ugly head. And and you only got a few options when you experience it. Uh, You you can get incredibly outraged and angry and bitter in the face of it, and then you'll become an agent of darkness yourself. Uh, You can completely choose to deny it. You can put on rose-colored glasses and distract yourself from it and try to create an alternate reality in which you're not dealing with reality. Or thirdly, you can just be completely hopeless in the face of darkness and hope to numb yourself up so you don't have a breakdown every day about how much of a mess this world actually is. I say all that to say, a person who understands what Isaiah is trying to get us to understand about the message of Christmas, when they look out into the world and they see how dark of a place it can be, they're not shocked by it. They're prepared for it. They're not naive about it. It doesn't upend them when it happens. And maybe even more importantly than that, when a person who understands the message of Christmas looks into their own heart and realizes that the sin in their heart and the pride and the self-centeredness and the weakness and the cowardice and the fill in the blank goes even deeper than they realize, that do, they don't fall to pieces at that. They're not completely upended by that. They're not shocked at that. Like somebody who doesn't understand what Isaiah is saying here, but this is so key they're also not cynical in the face of any of that. Because secondly, this will be the last implication I I leave you with today. Not only does the message of Christmas, when we understand it, not only does it allow us to face the darkness of this world and of our own hearts without flinching, but secondly and finally, the message of Christmas enables us to have hope even in the midst of that darkness. I I don't know anybody who put this better than somebody you've, you've definitely heard me quote before. That's no, none other than J.R.R. Tolkien. So in the third book of, uh, of The Lord of the Rings, if you've read the book, you might know where I'm going with this. There's this place where Sam, who's the main character's sidekick, uh, he, he's just about ready to give up because he's deep in enemy territory and it seems like with every step he takes, uh, he, he's just incredibly overwhelmed by the darkness of this world. Uh, he just, he feels this kind of hopelessness set in that things are so bad that they'll never be so good to outweigh how bad they are now. And how could anything or anyone ever clean this up? And one night he goes out and he looks into the sky, he sees a star, and here's exactly what the book says. While I read this, Sarah and the worship team, you all can come up because we've arrived at the end of our time. Here's what it says. It says, the beauty of the star smote his heart. As he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Many times he'd been defiant rather than hopeful. He was always thinking of himself. But now for a moment, his own fate and even his masters ceased to trouble him. And putting away all fear, he cast himself down into a deep, untroubled sleep. One of the ways that you can deal with the darkness of this world, and I think this is probably the primary default way we go about it, is just through sheer defiance. We just decide to steal our will and determine we're not gonna let it get to us and and, and we're not gonna let it stop us. And I think that response to the darkness of this world has an expiration date. I don't think that is a resource that will get us through any real tragedy, uh, any real pain, any real loss. And even if so, it certainly cannot help us deal with the reality of our own mortality. And what Sam realized that night is that there's another way to deal with the darkness of this world and actually find peace in the midst of it. And it's not through defiance. It was through hope. He realized that there was a light and there was a high beauty beyond the momentary darkness of this world, that the darkness of this world would never be able to touch and that that light eventually, even if he didn't see it in his lifetime, it would have the final say. And when that thought pierced him, it freed him. And I have to believe that Tolkien was thinking about this particular prophecy in Isaiah when he wrote those words because that is the essence of what Christmas is telling us. It's not about... It's not about hiding from reality or escaping from reality. It's about facing reality in all of its darkness, knowing that the shadows that we experience in this life are a small and passing thing because the light of God has entered into human history in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus returns to finish what he started, he's going to make sure that that darkness is driven out forever. And when that thought comes home to us, when it becomes real to us, and it becomes the foundation upon which we build our lives, what that gives us is the ability to have hope, to have joy, to have peace, even in the darkest of times. That's the meaning of Christmas. So we're gonna end this service and begin this series by remembering what Jesus has done for us through communion. If you haven't been here for that yet, the way that we do it, Sarah's going to lead us in one final song, and during that song, you're invited to approach either one of the tables, take the bread, take the juice, uh, take it back to your seat, and just take some time dealing with God and allowing God to deal with you. I would just ask God, what would He say to you through this prophecy that He he delivered somewhere around 2,700 years ago? Is there a darkness in your life that you need to face? Is is there? Is there a hopelessness in your life that's there because you have not availed yourself of the resources that Jesus died to give you? What does it mean that that you, though you live in darkness and darkness to a degree lives in you in this life, what does it mean that this light has dawned on you? How should that change your life? This is an amazing time during this final song to get quiet before God, to still yourself before him and think about the reality that Jesus is the light of the world. It comes so that we would never have to walk in darkness again. When the song's over, I'll come up, I'll read this again, we'll take communion, I'll pray over us, but take some time and think about this. The people in darkness have seen a great light. His name is Jesus. That's it. That's all. Let's take communion. I'm gonna read this over us, we'll take communion, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing the spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For the trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. If you haven't already done so, you can take the bread and the cup. I'll pray for us. Father God, your word says that you are light and in you is no darkness whatsoever. And knowing that, it is an incredible thing that in Jesus you chose to enter into the darkness that we created in turning from you. What what an amazing thing that your son Jesus knows what it's like to walk in the darkness that we've only ever known. The The dejection, the despair, the hopelessness, the emptiness. We have a high priest who sympathizes with everything that we go through, everything. Whoever listens to this, God, that that knows what hopelessness feels like, your son Jesus knows it in a cosmic way. And he took that darkness on himself so he could be the end of it without ending us. Father, thank you for sending the light of the world so that we wouldn't have to walk in darkness anymore. And I ask that his light would shine so brightly in our lives that we'd be powerless but to see it. That we would be people so pierced by what you've done that we would be a people of hope and joy and peace no matter how dark this world gets. For your glory and our joy and all of God's people said, amen. It was great worshiping with you, Severn. Have an amazing week.